everyone from the GM Yearbook. I'm Matt. And I'm Jim. We're here to take you on a journey through the years as we explore the music in our lifetime and the impact it's had on us and the world we've lived in. Welcome to version 1979. Here we are, right at the end of the 70s. Yeah, almost on to the 80s, because uh, 1980 was a pretty awesome year to cover. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. I didn't know whether to show up tonight in my disco platforms, eyeliner, my punk leather jacket. Yeah, no kidding. You know, it, it is something else this year in music, and it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Yeah, the 70s are awesome for just the variety of music that's out there. I might even sing you a little soft rock tonight. Who knows? <laughs> there's plenty of that. And there's plenty of that in the 70s. So. <laughs> All right. So w- one of the gentlemen that had an impact on our lives from the 70s was Sid Vicious. He died at the age of 21 from an overdose. Sid was a poster boy for everything punk. If you start talking about punk music, people's minds will probably picture Sid Vicious. Yeah. He got the gig in the Sex Pistols without even being able to play his instrument. That's pretty <laughs> punk rock right there. That's right in the spirit. The Pistols manager, Malcolm McLaren, put him in the band based on his look, and Sid was a fan of the band. Man, his life is quite a story. Very yeah. short. There's a lot in there that goes on with Sid Vicious. Yeah, addiction it, is always tragic. It is. It is. He, he came from a rough life and he yeah. did a lot of drugs, apparently, you know, from the biographies that I've looked at with, you know, with his mother growing up, uh, they were addicts together. And I'm sure that it had a lot to do with shaping the person that he was. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. But he definitely is that image of punk. Well, my, my guy uh, that I'm going to talk about who passed away is about as far away from punk as possible, really but still had quite an influence on a lot of music that took place in the seventies. His name was Lowell George came from a band called little feet. This wasn't a band I was ever really into, but Holy shit. He was connected throughout the industry and we got to talk about him. He came from Frank Zappa's band with the mothers of invention. Rye Cooter played slide guitar on little feet's most well-known song. Willen. This song got him kicked out of the mothers of invention because Zappa was hugely against drugs and thought it promoted smoking weed. He produced the Grateful Dead Shakedown Street album, and he did session work with everyone from Harry Nielsen to James Taylor to the Meters. Even Van Halen covered him on OU812. He was a man of excess, and he had a a weight issue. He enjoyed more than his fair share of drinking, eating, and drugs. On the 29th of June, he died of a heart attack caused by accidental cocaine overdose at the age of 34. I'm glad you put him in here, because I didn't even think twice when I saw the name. And then when I see all the names you put in about his connections, I was like, holy shit, I might have to dig deeper into Little Feet. Yeah, you know, I I recognized his name and Little Feet when I was going through the deaths on the year. And I'll randomly just pull one up every now and again, even if I don't know much about the person and start reading about their impact and what they had done in the music world. And as I started going further and further into his life, what he accomplished in his 34 years is legendary. It's, it's amazing. Oh, so, truly. yeah, he deserves to be here. But let's get on to 1979 and the epic music and events that took place during that year. You want to get us started? Sure. Uh, well, we'll start out with something that happened at the end of the year. December 3rd, 1979, fans were waiting in line for a concert by The Who at Cincinnati's Riverfront Stadium. They started a sound check and everybody waiting in line mistook this for the concert starting and they had very few doors open as they weren't ready to take people in. And there was just a 
you know, just a stampede from people not wanting to miss because it's, it was uh, festival seating. So there wasn't a signed seat. So, you know, first come first serve wherever you could get. Mm-hmm. Um, and it tragically took the lives of 11 people wow. and, you know, several more injured. And the band was never made aware of the event until after the show, because they didn't want to risk a crowd riot if they had canceled the show, mm-hmm. because I'm sure, you know, nobody at that show was aware that people died. You know, for all the names of people that we mentioned that are famous on the show, it's definitely worth mentioning these 11 individuals who died Yes, because they were just trying to go see a rock band. That's really tragic. Well, speaking of tragedy, <laughs> we're here in 1979. <laughs> I think that was a BG song. That tragedy! Came <laughs> uh, yeah. So let's get on to some music and, and the fun stuff. Even though 1979 is considered a peak year for disco, could it also be considered the beginning of the end? It seems like we've tried really hard not to go far into disco. You know, it, it blends all these sounds that we have in the 70s, the funk, soul, R&B, pop. And the, all these sounds were everywhere in the 70s. And it just put everything in a blender and put this just infectious beat to it. And, you know, plenty of cocaine. <laughs> uh, and by 79, disco had permeated the music landscape and acts like Rolling Stones, Rod Stewart, even the Grateful Dead. They mm-hmm. showed they weren't beyond being influenced by current music that was going on you know whether it's genuine intent in creating art or a way to maintain you know viability in a changing industry right even kiss got on board with uh i was made for loving you from the dynasty album yeah and that was a very divisive song at the time you know kiss fans obviously they were yelling sell out fuck you but damn (laughs) this is a great song it's so fucking catchy and i can tell you firsthand when they play this song live everybody loves it nobody hates this song they go nuts this is like considered their comeback album, but they, they see the audience that's coming to kiss and they're seeing kids come to yeah. the shows, yep. <laughs> you know, yep. and, and you start seeing the pictures of the ba- individual band members and they're all assigned like a color, you know, based on what they have for their <laughs> solo albums. So I'm, I'm sure they let things get out of control as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, they did. Gene Simmons kind of ran away with the, uh, <laughs> merchandising. Uh, oh, yeah. Jeez. Horrible. I think there's a lot of fun and happiness in disco music. I understand that people got sick of it because of how huge it became. We talk a lot about fatigue on the show. Everything had a disco theme. Star Wars disco, anyone? (laughs) And a lot of bands took a shot at trying to follow the trend, just as you mentioned. But there were a few bands that nailed it, even though they're disco. I think they created absolute classic songs in 1979. We saw Donna Summer break all kinds of records with her Bad Girl album. Hot Stuff still gets people's toes tapping. Earth, Wind & Fire released Boogie Wonderland. That song makes people jump up out of their seats. And Cool and the Gang began their dominant years on top with Ladies Night, which also had the song Too Hot on it. Even when people had given up on disco, Cool and the Gang were hanging around for the next few years. Oh, definitely. And every fad runs its course, right? And disco is definitely, especially when it burns that hot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listeners can tell when the authenticity runs out, you know, when the bottom of the barrel is being scraped, like Kiss doing a disco song. or or the, And there's just a point where people have had enough. And 1979 feels like the peak of disco, yet it does feel like the end as you were talking about. But on July 12th, 1979, there was a DJ in Chicago, uh, Steve Dahl. He held a promotion at Comiskey Park. There was a doubleheader game between the Chicago White Sox and the Detroit Lions, and he called it Disco Demolition Night. 
<laughs> and this could be the reason why we're kind of happy to talk about disco because <laughs> you know while i'm sure at the moment it might have been a little scary but looking back you're like yeah fuck disco <laughs> and if you brought a record for the cause admission to the game was only one dollar and the plan <laughs> was to put all the records in a crate and blow them up in center field in between the two games you know everyone had fun chant disco sucks and start the next game right even before the promotion started, records were flying around. And after the demo, Dalt, he took a victory lap and left the field. And then the fans just took the field. They just they just ran all over the place. You know, we didn't really talk about this before the show, but I've seen some documentary footage on this. So I did oh, know had about you? it. Yeah. And, and it did. It turned into a full-blown riot. They had expected about 25,000 people and the, you know, the official number was 50,000 people that turned up. And if you watch the video of it, records are getting flung all over the place. <laughs> Even while the players are out on the field, records are just yes. flying out there. And, and the people stormed the field after the explosion took place. The riot police had to be called in to disperse them. And the Sox had to give up uh, the game. They had to forfeit the, the next game of the double. Yeah, header. the field was just too damaged. Yeah. And 50,000, that's a rough estimate too. After the gates were closed, people were still sneaking into the game. They're climbing over anything to get into an open opening just to get into the game. <laughs> uh, and if you're a baseball fan, uh, look up 10 cent beer night in Cleveland for more shenanigans. Okay. That's something I don't know about. I've got to look yeah. that up. Okay. And not only did they do it once, they did it twice. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, so far this, this version starting out just like our first ever conversations, music and baseball. Yeah. But you would have beat me up if I talked about disco. <laughs> no, no, I probably wouldn't have. Cause I, I, I was a kiss fan. Right. So yeah, I was made yeah. for loving you. Yeah. That's I probably would have talked to yours off about that song. <laughs> <laughs> well, some bands were able to maintain respectable status through all of it at the same time. ELO, they were on the disco bandwagon. And I remember the song don't bring me down from 1979 being the very first song I heard on the radio that I wasn't being exposed to by somebody else intentionally that I really liked. I remember being in the back seat of the car. My mother was driving and I don't know where we were going, but all I could think in the car ride was, I hope we don't get there until this song is over because this is really cool. And I want to hear it all the way through ELO man, 1979, they were doing it right. Oh yeah. Don't bring me down. I remember hearing this in the bowling alley in Newport. Nice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but yeah, it's just got that drum beat that you don't want to stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I never took this, you know, for a disco song per se, but I think it had a lot of crossover success because it was so it was so big. But ELO, definitely that Discovery album. I mean, Shine a Little Love and Last Train to London. Those are definite disco songs, you know, yeah. that 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 hot. You can't mistake that hi hat in that busy bass. And, you know, especially when the bass starts hitting octaves the way they do. You like, oh, that's fucking disco. <laughs> ELO, Cool and the Gang, Earth, Wind and Fire, they had they had disco in their DNA. It's in their makeup, right? Just due to the instrumentation they have available and what they've always used. You know, they yeah. fit right in yep. to, to the disco world. Yeah. Well, we can't forget that this is also where hip hop kind of came out of these disco albums, these records. And it's a genre that's only gotten larger over the last 40 years. So everybody that yelled disco sucks wound up hearing these songs pretty much for the rest of their lives. 
The Sugar Hill Gang released Rapper's Delight in 1979 as a single, and it changed everything. I can only imagine how much fun it would have been to stand around Grandmaster Flash as he was spinning his deck, scratching these disco records and catching the music and the beats and then just rhyming over the top of it. And, and on and on and on and on and the beat don't stop to the break of dawn. I said a M-A-S, a T-E-R with a G to it, a double E. I said I go by the unforgettable name of the man they called Master G. Yeah. And they got some good mileage out of Sheik's Good Times. Come on, that song's been a... <laughs> yeah, that's a hell of a bass line. You might as well rip it off. It's good enough yeah. for two songs in the same year. <laughs> but there's and there's plenty of, you know, disco classics. They're everywhere in 79 still. Uh, Boogie Wonderland, Boogie Yogi Oogie. There's something with that boogie fucking word. It's not, <laughs> It kind of feels weird to say, but it's all over the place. We are mm-hmm. family and cool in the gang. I mean, celebrations right around the corner. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You know, there's still more to come. It doesn't die off straight away. And we saw that when we did 1980 and 1981. It's not really into the early 80s that disco kind of fades out. But at the same time, like I said, we're going to hear those beats and those grooves right up until the 90s and the 2010s. And it really isn't until the past maybe 10, 15 years that rap started evolving in a different direction and different Mm. genres of rap started coming out but yeah this time this era of disco was the backbone of hip-hop music in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. so while we saw disco peak and then get blown up literally as we talked about (laughs) there was a small underground music movement with its own genre you might have heard of two-tone records they introduced the world the sky and bands like the beat or the english beat they would say in north america in america (laughs) Uh, the specials and madness. And I'm going to chase the elephant out of the room right away here. Ska music was not about cultural appropriation by white people. Yes, the British have a controversial and dark history of colonization and treatment of Jamaica, where Ska emerged along with reggae. But when this scene exploded in London in the late 1970s, I'm not trying to sugarcoat this. Ska was about inclusiveness and diversity. It welcomed everyone from every background to sing, play an instrument, or dance. Racism wasn't welcome in the ska community. Now, I have to admit, ska is one of those genres that I kind of dip in and out of selectively. I enjoy a song from almost most of the popular bands here or there. But still, there, there are a lot of times that I've enjoyed you know, the horn sections, those bass grooves, and the infectious sound that does make you want to get up and dance, even if after two and a half minutes of doing it, I'm out of breath and I'm done for the night. <laughs> yeah, Ska is so relentless. And I admire that energy and being able to pull off an hour long show at that mm-hmm. tempo. It's pretty damn amazing, you know, but it, it it does. It demands your body to move, but it's it's not just physical. There's something mentally draining about listening to it for a long time. It's maybe maybe it's an emphasis with with that upstroke on the two and the four, and it's not like a steady barrage like with punk. Da, 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 it's like the ching where I can't drift away. It always pulls me back, and, and I'm like, no, I need to do something else now. I can't think about you. So moving on from ska uh, by '79, punk it's it's fractured into subgenres. You know, we kind of went on this thing where punk's an umbrella that contains all these other bands, but you still have your proper punk, which kind of, they, they, they just took control of that punk moniker, you know, your Black Flag, Sex Pistols. And there are bands that have the energy, but it's fine-tuned a little bit. And, you know, it's more like your post-punk, your Buzzcocks, your jam. They still have that DIY feel, 
but it's mm-hmm. less, it's much less abrasive. Right. Yeah. And then new wave is also kind of broken away from that punk umbrella. You know, it's got a lighter tone, but um, it's embraced some of that thinking of rejecting trends in popular rock music. Joe Jackson's look sharp and Blondie's eat to the beat Two fantastic albums. I love both of these so much. New wave is right in my wheelhouse. I, I turn it on and I can just listen all day. Yeah. I listened to the Joe Jackson album all the way through for the first time this week. I knew one of the songs off of it from 1979, but this is the first time I'd really tuned into it and I really enjoyed it. And Blondie's an odd conversation to have. I love the band. I think Blondie are kind of chameleons in a way because you never get the same thing album to album. Yeah. But but it's always good. People hear Blondie and they immediately think Deborah Harry. Yes. But they have to be one of the greatest all around bands of their era. Everything just connects musically. And then Deborah Harry fronts the songs with an untouchable attitude of a musical siren. They were groundbreaking. And I don't think we talk about them enough. They don't get enough credit. Yeah. And I envision some corrective action coming up in a cleanup episode because I, I have neglected <laughs> to talk about uh, Blondie. And fun fact, Blondie's drummer, Clem Burke, he briefly went by another name in 1987. Elvis Ramon. No. Yeah. Sorry. I had to do that. <laughs> okay, Matt. Well, guess what? What? The Cure debut. Uh, yeah, I know. That's why I had to get in the pre- preemptive Ramon. <laughs> well, you know, there are albums that they had out in 80, 81 songs. They spent some time in 1979 and into the early 1980s recording a few albums and releasing a handful of singles. But their first album, Three Imaginary Boys, came out in 1979. And they also released a couple of singles that really caught the attention of the earliest fans. One of those songs was Boys Don't Cry. This is a classic, iconic Cure song. It's still part of their set list today. If you go see them you know, 40 years later, they're still playing this in their set and their fans go crazy over it. And yeah, I get this is probably where emo was born. Goth kind of came out of this. Maybe the fans will argue back and forth over that and then share some eyeliner. I don't know, (laughs) but I'm neither. I've loved and I still love the song Boys Don't Cry. It's one of those songs that's never really worn out on me. The second great single they released, spoiler alert, will be in my five when we get there. Yeah. And people are going, what? Not Boys Don't Cry? Yeah. No. (laughs) so i okay i made a special effort with the cure this week uh you know my troubles with them they're well known but i 100 admit that that opinion it's based on a small sample size and i know the cure they're they're important to a lot of people they're Mm -hmm. very influential so and i didn't hate this album and because i know this band is important to a lot of people i i do go back to the cure occasionally just to try to figure out but I don't think I ever really took this whole album in. Um, I'm never going to embrace his voice, but the, it's a good album. You know, there's some really good songs on here. And I do like, I like the sound a lot. I know you've got some friends, Matt, they'd be so proud of you for listening to a Cure album this week. <laughs> <laughs> I think this might be my first full Cure album. Listening I'm, I'm, to. I'm proud of you as well. You know what? It, it's <laughs> not always easy to sit through a whole Cure album. And I don't know if I can always do that. I'm glad you listened to them with a little bit of an open mind. The vocals can make or break a lot of music for people. And I can understand why Robert Smith's voice isn't everyone's cup of tea, but the songwriting is really good. And I'm glad you can hear that. 
Oh yeah. In version 2019, we kind of got into this whole cry singing by men. And while I don't <laughs> think, <laughs> and I'm not going to, I'm not going to say Robert Smith is cry singing it. And you know, like Lewis Capaldi, you know, it, it's more like of a, it's more of a wine with his inflection and his emphasis on certain symbols. Like boys don't cry. You know, it's that whole, the way the words kind of slowed, you know, come in low and it build up, you know, it's mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Oh, nobody likes me. You know, that, that's why it kind of sounds like it's maybe not whining, maybe like pouting or, or something, you know, but it's emo. Right. You know, it, it, and it's weird how we can accept things, but find them annoying when they're somewhere else you know, cause I didn't have that much of a problem with Capaldi, but you know, th- there was that saturation for you. And it makes me wonder what else is involved in forming those opinions where we tolerate it here, but we can't there. Yeah. So g- speaking of fatigue, mm-hmm. I'm wondering how the wall sits with you after all these years. I only have a few memories of it personally, back in 1979, another brick in the wall is something we both probably grew up with hearing on radio. What was rock radio became classic rock radio, yeah. but it was playing another brick in the wall. And I remember snickering when my older brother would play the song mother, because he said, well, will I try to break my balls? Balls. <laughs> balls. He said balls. <laughs> but I didn't really start to explore Floyd until I was 19, much later and various other extracurricular activities were taking place. <laughs> when did you first hear this album? You know, I don't think I heard this until a few more years down the road. I don't really remember hearing it on the radio, at least the radio where I, you know, I was listening. I was probably more crushing on Holland Oates than Pink Floyd. Yeah. Um, the walls specifically, I don't remember, but uh, do you remember the sh- TV show WKRP in Cincinnati? Oh, I certainly do. This is less. Yeah. Less, 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 <laughs> God is my witness. I swore turkeys could fly. <laughs> so th- there's a scene in one of the episodes where Mr. Carlson goes into the, the booth and Johnny Fever is there, kind of got his feet kicked up and he's listening to Pink Floyd, but it's animals. I think it's dogs. Um, and they kind of go on a conversation, you know, briefly. And that, that was kind of like my introduction to Pink Floyd. I don't really remember the wall until you know quite a few years later just because it wasn't in my atmosphere you know and i know i'm a year off with with animals but the wall just kind of has that feeling like it's always been there yeah no i i know what you're saying it it was always kind of there for me like i said i i knew a couple of the songs i didn't know anything about comfortably numb back then it wasn't really like i said until i was about 19 that i remember seeing the movie the wall when I watched it with my friends for the first time when I went to college and almost being afraid to watch it because it had this forbidden fruit. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. I know it came out in 1982, but here we are talking about the album. So there's no reason to come back to it when we do the 1982 show, but it was supposed to be so fucked up and disturbing. And I remember getting to the end and thinking, this this, this is it this was it that's all <laughs> it, it was cool but you know i didn't need to get stoned and watch it on repeat like a lot of people seemed to have to do in those days yeah and and something kind of gets to me when people say oh you just you know you just need to have be high or something to, to enjoy it's like well then is it really all that enjoyable because you know like yeah. you i didn't really catch see this movie till i was probably like 19 or 20 even though i had opportunities by then you've seen other things that when you do finally see this, you're not as blown away by it, no. you know, because it's not that you're not that you're not, you're not the right age. I think the wall for me 
was just kind of like a rite of passage for people yes. in that age group. You know, we're talking 18, 19 years old. It's kind of like reading The Catcher in the Rye. I remember reading that book mm-hmm. and thinking, I'm intentionally going to read this book and maybe I'll go crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and, oh, and I'm going to read 1984 next. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's important for certain albums to remain evergreen where some people may be exhausted from hearing it all their lives. But if you can turn somebody on to a great piece of music like this, and you get that reaction that you want, you see them amazed and blown away by it. It can put you back when you were first blown away by it. Yeah, It just releases something in your brain that goes, you know what? I really remember loving this. So when you first started, you know, putting these notes together, it was like inevitable. We're going to dive into the wall. Probably not head first because that might hurt. Sorry, <laughs> dad jokes. <laughs> and I kind of went down one road because I was like, I'm a little fatigued, but then I'm like thinking back. It's like, yeah, but Matt, the week prior you went record shopping and you were specifically looking for the wall. I'm like, well, (laughs) wait a second. Why was I looking for the wall? If I'm never going to listen to it because I'm tired of it because I'm, because I'm not tired of it because whenever comfortably numb comes on, I'm like, yeah, I've heard this a million times, but man, when that solo kicks in, I'm just blown away all over again, just because you can, you can feel the emotion in it. And I think that's what I still get out of the wall. There are just highlights for it that make everything worth listening to the whole album again. When we do episode 1973, I'm going to absolutely gush over Dark Side of the Moon. It, It is one of those albums I've listened to end to end probably more than any other. And, you know, the wall does have great songs and I'm, I'm not surprised you sought it out because it's one of those albums that, you want to collect, you want to mm-hmm. have anyway there to listen to at arms length. Because you never know when you're going to want to hear it. And you still are going to want to, whether you think you're going to or yeah. not. The guitar solo to Another Brick in the Wall, still oh, a great yeah. solo. The way it cuts in is just absolutely gorgeous. And musically and lyrically, Comfortably Numb is one of my favorite songs. Mm. For me, what it comes down to with The Wall is it's just not an album that's easy to sit all the way through. There's something that turns away my interest when I'm trying to do that. Mm -hmm. It could be about all the sound effects and the layered imagery that they try to build. But I do understand that it is a huge achievement. I just don't think future generations will connect with it the same way ours did. Yeah. And that's kind of a shame too, because I think it deserves to be. So, Mm -hmm. and and I, I know why I can get into this album because I'm more of an album person than you, I think. And I don't mean that, you know, in a derogatory way. And I know you do have challenges with double albums. So is it because it's a mm-hmm. double album or um, I know I, I know I like concept albums, but I never, I don't think I've ever really asked your opinion on concepts. I don't know if it's a double album thing or not. There are very few double albums that I really dig or get into, but we've talked in the past about how double albums just don't work. Just release two albums. <laughs> yeah. Well, certain ones, certain ones. You know, yes. it, Yeah, yeah. And a lot of times, more than not, the double album does not work for the artist. It's a very few certain ones I think we probably agree on that are are really great. But And it's not that this isn't a great album. And I would still say on a scale of one to 10 in double albums, this is a strong seven. You know, it's not a 10 for me, but that's just because there's something in there that distracts me when I'm listening to it that draws me away. When it comes to concept albums... I'll admit, I have a hard time listening to an album all the way through anyway, unless it's really exceptional. I can listen to almost every song on the wall individually without needing to hear the entire thing 
back to back. Conceptual albums may just, they might be too abstract for me. Maybe I'm not sophisticated <laughs> enough. I think it's your patience level. I don't think it's, I, yeah. I don't think it's your sophistication level. It, it, it's my, it's my ADHD going, <laughs> what? Oh, what day? <laughs> I need disco. <laughs> yes, I need disco. <laughs> But to me, albums like this, sometimes they're, they're not like storybooks with compelling plot lines and character trajectories. Mm-hmm. Those are hard to find in concept albums. I think I always find them stuffed with filler to move songs along. Yeah, sometimes. So I prefer an album that's just great from beginning to end where the songs transcend from track to track and it feels complete from beginning to mm-hmm. end. Not necessarily with a story told, but there are ways that albums can be shaped that way that make them spectacular. But when we reach 1972, I will talk about a concept album that changed my life and is one of my favorite albums. I can't wait. I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. And there's nothing catchy on on the wall. I mean, there's really nothing catchy because that kind of makes me think that it's pop oriented you're not going to get that from pink floyd and yeah i understand yeah there's going to be filler because you know i i talked a few versions ago about you know the, the arc the, of building an album how that t- how it should take you on like this roller coaster ride and yeah the wall doesn't really kind of do that it's kind of like more at one high level for me you know, it's kind of like at a seven, all the most of the way through, but then, you know, like stuff like comfortably numb comes on and it, it goes up to a nine, nine and a half, you know, but then it dips right back down to a seven, but yeah, yeah, it, it's yeah. great. I, I, I do love it. Um, and, but again, for me, Pink Floyd, it's a solo listening thing. You know, it's, it's kind yeah. of, to me, it's very intimate music. Yeah. So yeah, I prefer more deep listening. Well, hey, if you want to get intimate, Matt, let me ask you. Do you like pina coladas <laughs> and getting caught in the rain? <laughs> I'm not much into health food, Jim. I am in, in pain. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Escape, the pina colada oh, song. Oh, man. <laughs> I think I was giving you a ride home from work one night in Bennington. And in this song, I had a mixtape in my in my car at the time and this song came on and i i can't remember ever seeing you so happy to to hear a song you're like oh i love this song and then we got to your apartment and you you made me bring the tape in because you had to make sure everybody heard this but i think you and i were the only ones that were happy to hear it (laughs) i have to admit i'm a fan of cheesy music this is probably my favorite slice of cheese it's perfectly cheesy Matt, I had an epiphany today about my love of pop music, and I think it came from this. I think it was birth from the Pina Colada <laughs> song, or at least I can go back to this and really understand my draw to some pop music, because I don't like everything pop, yeah. but I definitely seem to like some of the silliest, craziest songs that all my hipster cool friends look at me and go, what the fuck? <laughs> and And what it comes down to for me is I think I get this great joy out of really cheesy music. It's dumb. I know it's dumb. I know what good songwriting is. I can talk to you all day about Pink Floyd and the wall and what they have going on there. But on the flip side of that, there's some joy in something that's so stupid and silly that it can still be really enjoyed. So I was thinking about this. Like I said, it was an epiphany to me today about the Pina Colada song. And it, it is 
my favorite cheesy song. And I'm glad that I don't care who heard it. Yeah, no way. Brought the cassette tape up. <laughs> it's just so good. If it had been released today, this song would have been two people swiping on yeah. Tinder. And then they would have been catfishing each That's other. That's a great fucking idea, Jim. Their- you ought to do it. <laughs> until they reached their oh shit moment at the end and pretended they were playing some kind of kinky game with each yep. other i was thinking about this earlier and i was like going through the lyrics in my head and the lyric if you have half a brain and i was like what an insult to the partner who actually shows oh, up at O'Malley's at the end because you're actually going to write this want ad about somebody who's nothing really like the partner you want. It's about the perfect person you want to be with. And then they show up and you're like, yeah. Oh, wait, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to insult you. You have half a brain. I'm really sorry. And, and then the other part in he's sitting there in O'Malley's and he, he sees her, you know, her smile from an instant. He knows the curves of her face. It was my own sexy lady. And she says, Oh, it's you. (laughs) And I can't help but think that all of a sudden she showed up and was like, oh, fuck. And she had to play along with the moment. I didn't didn't even think of that because he sounds so cheerful when he's singing it like he took it in a good way. I think he did because he only has half a brain or not even. Yeah, and if this song were to be done today, it's like they wouldn't even have gotten that far. They would have immediately gone on their phone to like Twitter or Facebook and everything and posted the whole story instead of like reconnecting. OMG. Yeah, OMG. <laughs> this just happened. You wouldn't have guessed who I put a Tinder date up with and I met up with my yeah. own. Oh, that's great. It would have been, but the funny thing is they would have used pictures of other people. Oh yeah, exactly. And it would have been the common <laughs> phrase like, so this just happened. Yeah. You can bet your ass that later on in life, if either one of them said they were going down to O'Malley's that night, the other one was like, no, you're fucking not. Yeah. <laughs> you're <laughs> yeah. It would have been nice to hear what excuse they told the other when they were going down to O'Malley's. <laughs> I'm, I'm going with you. I feel like going to O'Malley's too. <laughs> and back then they probably each, they, they probably shared a car, I would think. So one of them had to take a bus or a walk yeah. or take a cab. There's no Uber. <laughs> hey, you wonder what the excuse was for the other one going out that night. Oh honey, I'm just going out, you know. Uh, yeah. I got to put my <laughs> face on. <laughs> Back yes. in the day, I'm bringing my book of nobody's poet poetry. <laughs> <laughs> and what I think is also funny is, and though I'm nobody's poet, I thought it wasn't half bad. And then he just uses the first poem. Yeah. So he totally <laughs> plagiarizes the original poem, and he's like, "Oh, this is pretty good." <laughs> and for some reason, I don't know why, but when I think of this guy walking into the bar, I always think of Fred from Scooby Doo. you know some guy showing up in the 70s with a fucking ascot (laughs) (laughs) that's great i i told you i could riff on this song all night long and do it it's awesome it's a great slice of american cheese it is it is it was the final number one hit of the 1970s and it kind of sums up the 70s well but but you know future generations are getting exposed to the song because it was on the recent guardians of the galaxy soundtrack so it's right there mm-hmm. for you know future generations to to discover and it's safe to say like it or not this song is going to hang around forever and if you <laughs> and really if you don't like it aren't you trying not to yeah. <laughs> just because it's great 
<laughs> it is. All right, enough pina <laughs> Oh yeah, so so yeah, but there's still a lot of good little pop numbers going on amidst all this punk and ska and whatever genre you want to put Pink Floyd in and burgeoning rap <laughs> that's coming out. There was still a little bit of guitar rock around. Mm-hmm. I'm doing some research or I made myself do research because I'm just sitting around with a guitar the other day. And I said, dumbass, you need to, you need to fucking get on the ball here and do some work. (laughs) (laughs) So I put on a playlist and I'm finding my tolerance of guitar rock is completely based on whether or not I have a guitar in my hands, (laughs) because the first two songs that came on were from foreigner and bad company. And so right there, I'm like, Oh yeah, I can still tolerate this. I just need to have a guitar in my hands. When it comes to the guitar rock from 1979, I did flip through the bands and I'm familiar with a lot of them. They, to me, it was almost like they were just at arm's length of what I was going to really embrace and love by a lot of these bands. Like Foreigner, The Cars had an album out this year, Van Halen 2. To me, they're all just an album or two away from having that huge moment in my musical fabric. I think that as far as rock music goes, it was the new wave sound that you talked about earlier for me that really kicked in in 1979 and it was poised to take over. Oh, definitely. Cause um, the, the cars were on the verge of just exploding in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Van Halen too. I love that record. I spent so many rainy days and cold winter days and nights listening to that album. I love it so much. I almost put Spanish fly in my phone. Oh, really? I could have gone with women and uh, women in love or beautiful girls. I love those two. Well, they're great songs. They're great rock songs, but I wanted to actually bring to the playlist, possibly a song where I think Eddie intentionally sat down in the studio and where people made comments like it's all the effects he uses oh, or no it's the yeah. strings. It's how he plays. And he picked up an acoustic and showed you that he could do the exact same mm. thing and create an amazing instrumental piece with all the finger tapping, with all the, the, the finger strokes, the, the pick strokes, everything that he does, uh, his chord structures, his phrasing. It's just such a beautiful acoustic instrumental piece. It is, piece. and it's so great on headphones because you can hear you can hear a human being playing a guitar. Yes. It's, oh, yeah, that, that would, I, that would have been a weird one to have on the five because it's, you know, well, we have had an instrumental piece on before. So I yes, guess that, that wouldn't be too weird, but yeah, Spanish Fly is a great <laughs> song. I love that. Looking back through all, everything that we've talked about, you know, the ska, the rap, punk, and all that stuff, you know what seems a little out of place? It maybe seems like it's an older song than 1979. Is the devil went down to Georgia. Oh, it's, yeah. like, it's like country rap almost. I think there are a lot of country songs with this type of storytelling cadence, though, not necessarily rap. I think it's something that's almost traditional to it. I can hear how it sounds like rap today, but I think it was meant to sound more like someone rhyming a story around a campfire, mm-hmm. like cowboy way. But I have to admit that that rock and fiddle part in the middle is just <laughs> awesome. Yeah, this, this this also got played just as much as the Escape Pina Colada song in my apartment in Bennington. <laughs> really? I never would have thought that. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. That's amazing. But country music, they've always yes. kind of had this spoken word quality. 
and their songs, especially like Porter Wagoner. Some of those songs he did with Dolly, well, not just Dolly Parton, but even on his own. They always had this, you know, spoke George Jones, this spoken word piece in it. I think as we come into our five now, because that's what we need to do, <laughs> I think we will find that I enjoyed 1979 quite a bit. I've got a lot of sentimentality attached to it, but you picked 1979, which means you get to go first this oh, week. So let's go to our five and you are going to start us off with your first song from 1979. Okay. I'm going to start off with kiss and it's not, I was made for loving you. It was 2000 <laughs> man. There were a few candidates. I'll give an honorable mention to charisma that starts off site two, but Ace Freely does this Rolling Stones cover. And I know Rolling Stones fans are probably saying, oh no, this is, this is shit. But no, man, Ace Freely takes a song and he rocks it right up. And it's awesome. It's right up there with New York Groove for me as far as Ace Freely songs. And I was made for loving you aside. Dynasty was a, a really big change in their sound and their songwriting um, because they were getting mm -hmm. um, external partnerships, Desmond Child and uh, Vince Poncia for producing and in writing. And this is a 1979 album. Their first album was in 74. That's only five years. And within that yeah. five years, they have six, six studio albums, two <laughs> live albums, a double album, greatest hits and the four solo albums. And I, I don't know how Ace and Peter had enough spare time to get drunk and high and still record, but well, Peter Chris didn't really play drums on this album. He played <laughs> uh, he played drums on one song, Dirty Living. But Anton Fig, who people might know from the David Letterman show, he was a friend of Ace. I believe he played drums on Ace's solo album. So he did a lot of the drumming on Dynasty. I'm probably in the minority of Kiss fans, but this is one of my favorite Kiss albums of all time. I'm not familiar with the Stones version, so nothing surprised me as far as that went. I am familiar with Anton Fig though, and I had no clue he played the drums on this. I thought those were Peter Chris's toms, and I messaged you and said, "Oh, I can tell about the drum sound." And you were like, "No, it's, <laughs> it's not." Anton <laughs> Fig. Yep. Yeah, but it's a cool song, and you know, it's our second Kiss song, so it's a good yeah, addition. Thanks. All right. So, what is your number one? My number one is going to be a Madness song. We're gonna go straight to ska. Yeah. I talked about ska yeah. earlier. And this is not a nod on my part to ska. I've always loved this song. It's one of those songs that I've just always known. I don't know why. I think it's just because it's fun. And I might, might have thought it was funny when I was a kid. I don't even know how I heard it when I was a kid because it wouldn't have had much exposure <laughs> in the States. You know, back in the early 80s, maybe a music video on MTV randomly caught or something. But, you know, you think about the legacy of Madness. This is the same band that did Our House it must be love, you know, oh, some yeah. really cool talk. Yeah. It, and even, you know, today they're putting out albums, their music has changed, but it's still great over all the years, but it's just a fun classic song. I like the vocal introduction to madness <laughs> and then the classic saxophone and guitar joined together. It, it is, it's pure ska. My musical compliment to your lost straight jackets from last <laughs> week. Hey, you. Actually, it's kind of appropriate for this time of year, you know, where the uh, over in the States where we get those monster cereal re-releases every Halloween. Yes, yeah. You know, he kind of comes in like Booberry a little bit, you know. He does, yeah. <laughs> but no, this is a 
great song. It's, it's got a little bit of a surf sound in there, so it, it definitely fits with mm-hmm. Straight Jackets. I got hooked on this album this week. It is so fucking awesome. And so I dove into some recent, like, you know, probably in the last, like, five years, live clips. I couldn't believe the size of the audiences they were play to. It's so it's I'm so telling you, awesome. they play massive venues. It's yeah, so awesome. Yeah, Madness is still yeah, great. They're just out there entertaining people and just yes. they're impressive. They really are great. All right. Your number two. What is it? I'm going to go with the B-52s and Rock Lobster. This song is for everyone who thinks Yoko Ono had no influence on music. <laughs> <laughs> it's catchy. It's funny. There's wailing. But most importantly, it's a well-crafted song. It, it mm-hmm. try not to at least smile when Fred's listing off all the fish and you know the sound effects are you know <laughs> the little you know the whales are going on in the background. You know the these first couple B52s albums they're just awesome. Yeah, talking about new wave classics. It has that cool retro 50s surf mm, guitar yes. sound again. Maybe that's part of new I wave so. when it came out. But it fits right into everything that's going on in the new wave era. Yep, and that's what I love about new wave. It's there's just this playfulness, yet there's serious music going on. You know, there's great bouncy yeah. energy. But just listen to the songs, and you realize, wow, there's a lot going on here. It's yeah, it's great mm-hmm. music. All right, what is your number two? I am going to go with Christopher Cross, "Ride Like the Wind," not "Break Like the Wind." As Spinal Tap. No. <laughs> this song, it's just a cool song to me. There's nothing that's really profound about it in my life. It's just one of those songs that for some reason, you, you ever have songs that are just driving songs? Oh yeah, definitely. That's what, that's what this song is to me. I love how hard it hits when he's playing the piano keys at the beginning. They, they come in loud, you know, just boisterous almost in the, in the ears and the percussion and the rhythm set to the background is so cool. If I'm going to ever drive down the California coastline with a top down, this is what I want playing on my radio. Oh, and this is one of those songs that represents what I thought you would gravitate to in 1979. There's a ton of happy, just awesome, cool pop songs like this going around. Mm-hmm. And Christopher Cross, he's got a few of them off that album there. this is a great choice these pop songs here it's almost a shame to call what's going on today pop because you just listen to this song of what is going on it's it's very impressive this song also won a grammy and christopher cross dedicated it to lowell george oh i didn't know that all i knew was that it beat out the wall and people were very upset (laughs) yeah they were (laughs) there's there's a lot of difference in creativity there going on (laughs) yeah but if if you're going to give an award to what is maybe more accessible to a large audience you're going to go with ride like the wind yeah but let's not get into that because then we'll talk about exactly let's go on to number (laughs) exactly (laughs) (laughs) what's your third song matt so my number three is going to be cheap trick and way of the world Cheap Trick is just one of my favorite rock bands of all times. And this is one of their best albums. Rick Nielsen, he can just write some of the most catchy guitar riffs. Tom Peterson's use of eight and 12 string basses. They just add so much depth and character to their songs. Bonnie Carlos, his drum beats, they always took me in. And Robin Zander has the perfect voice for rock. He can be just as gentle with his voice if he needs to be, but then he can kind of just belt it out. Mm -hmm. This song kind of just showcases 
everything that Cheap Trick does for me. It's great. I, lo- I love this song. Yeah, my brother had this album. And I don't think I'd heard this song for 40 oh, years. Really? You know, really until I put it on this week. It was really cool to have that. Holy shit <laughs> moment. I remember this when it came on. A cool song to add to the yeah. playlist. And, and a great rock and cheap trick song, as they do. All right. Number three number for three, me. What's yours? My number three is going to be a Cure song. So here we go. Oh, let me put you, the let, first Cure let song. Let me mute you. No. <laughs> <laughs> the Cure, it, it is a pure new wave classic. They were part of that genre at the time as it was coming out. It features that distinctive extended intro that The Cure are known for with such a cool little guitar melody leading it through. This is something that goes throughout their career with their songs. Then it attacks rhythmically and it doesn't let up. I wanted to bring a Cure song to the show that would be unexpected. You know, it'd be easy to bring Boys Don't Cry, but I'd rather people hear this side of them. It's not as whiny of a song, even if his voice sounds the way that it does. And speaking of that, even when I hear this music, I couldn't imagine a different vocal style to it. Everything just works. This may be the first Cure song that made me listen to a little more of them. And so it's the first song I'll bring to the playlist. Yeah, I was glad you put this one on there because this did kind of stand out to me from that album. This was one of the ones that I did more, I gravitated more towards. Um, mm-hmm. I, but Boys Don't Cry, that's it's a good song, you know, vocal limitations. But you're right to add this because this probably wouldn't get added on like a poll as a choice. No, because no. it's, you know, it's a little more unknown. But yeah, that's this is a good song to put on there. I like this one. Yeah, yeah. So there we go. My number three. So I'm ready to give you my number four and it is the Boomtown Rats and I don't like Mondays. Oh, tell me why you don't like Mondays. (laughs) (laughs) It's just one of those songs that everyone relates to in life, isn't it? Yes, yes. And yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I work every other weekend and we refer to Friday as that Friday that we work is second Monday (laughs) because everybody fucking hates Mondays. Right. Yeah. But this is a great song to belt out to when you're just kind of sick of it all, you know, whenever you, you could probably walk down the, the walk down the street and go, tell me why. And somebody would say, I don't like Monday. Yeah, they would. (laughs) Or, or or give you the claps, you know, not the clap. They would give you the claps. (laughs) Hey man, I'm a Monday through Friday, nine to five guy. So I relate yeah. to this song totally. Uh, I, yeah, who doesn't? Who hates mm. Mondays? Yeah. Everybody hates Mondays. All right. So, what is your number four? But you could have heard a pin drop when Tommy stopped and locked the door. There is a generation of guys out there that have the hair rise on the back of their neck when they hear that verse. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't sound like Kenny Rogers, but no. they know exactly where it's from and what imaginative badass moment that it's about to take place. And this Just is like the Leroy song. Brown. Yes. This is the song Coward of the County. Not quite the same as Charlie Daniels, as far as rhythmically, you know, storytelling goes, but it's another example of straight up storytelling in country music. It's a difficult song about different times. The Becky character suffers terribly at the hands of the Gatlin brothers. Even as a kid, I, I knew what was going on, you know, kind of heartbreaking to think that I understood that when I was really young. In retrospect, maybe it should have been more about protecting Becky, 
than breaking the promise to his dad in the end. But, you know, he walked in after everything was done. There's some satisfaction in knowing that he took her away after unleashing a lifetime of fury on these bullies (laughs) and not one of them was left standing. This song to me is country gold through and through. And one of my favorite country songs of all time. I love Kenny Rogers. I've not really had a chance to talk about him and I've not, we've gone through some years where some of his, you know, I talk about cheesy music, you know, some of his really kind of cheesy love songs might've been the chart toppers that mm-hmm. year, but coward of the County be- became a television miniseries. Yes, at one it point. Did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, it really had a lot of lore to it. And when I was a kid growing up, I loved this song. And to this day, if you catch me out on a night after a few beers and some karaoke, I will try to give you my best. Kenny. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what? Because it had a, a mini series based on it. This is what country music has going for. It. It's the mm-hmm. storytelling. Yeah. Right. And you're, you're talking probably what a three and a half minute song, four minute song or whatever, but there was enough depth to the story where you could have told five more stories based on the characters. Yeah. In the song. Yeah. Right. And you're right. This song is Kenny at the top of his game here. He was huge in the seventies. Yep. In early eighties. Yeah. So here, there we go. There we go. That's my fourth. So we are on to your fifth. All right. We'll go with my number five. It is the clash with train in vain. I cannot get sick of the song. It's so catchy. I don't care if anybody's sick of it. I love it. (laughs) You know, we talk about bands. We don't talk about when we come on to a year that we're covering. And I spent this entire show treading carefully, maybe to avoid the clash. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know what your take was going to be on them. And then when I saw this in the note, I was kind of like, yeah, (laughs) because I know that people are a little more divided on the clash as the years have gone by. It could be about fatigue, you know, they get played a lot on classic rock radio and, you know, some of the songs are kind of repetitive and might wear down the listener over time. But there's also some questioning over whether or not they were genuine punks. But there's no doubt that this music and this album, I mean, London Calling, the iconic album cover, that could be another reason why people are sick of it, because they just see that photo everywhere, you know, (laughs) and that just happens in the world. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, no, I understand all that completely. And, you know, because by this time, if you said punk, like we said at the beginning, you immediately think Sex Pistols, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Because by now everything has been you know disseminated into their different boxes you know new wave post-punk punk whatever um it's not it's not loud and abrasive and in your face like people think of when they think of punk you know and i always remember punk is just being that box that everything went into and everything that was put in there was embraced because it didn't fit anywhere else and I think where people lose them is Combat Rock. I think it's their second album. I think after that, because Sandinista, the Magnificent Seven, you know, that kind of borders on disco a, 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 a little bit because there were some funk and rap elements in there. Yeah, yeah. But where the clash lose out is because I don't think radio stations, I don't think they know who's who's supposed to play the clash because they don't fit in with guitar rock that you're going to hear on classic rock radio. Mm-hmm. they don't they don't fit in on your top 40 stations right because yeah. in and, that, and that's kind of why they are punk because they don't fit in it they don't fit in anywhere 
I think this is the perfect Clash song to add to the playlist, to be honest with you. All right, my last song? Yes, yours. Okay. Do you have a box of tissues with you? Or maybe two? Yes, I do, actually. Yeah, well, you're going to need them because we're about to go down really nostalgia memory lane for the inner inner child. Give me my tissue. Yes, Tito, give him (laughs) a tissue. My number five song is Kermit the Frog, Rainbow Connection. And right here, there should be like a sound effect of everybody giving you a standing ovation. (laughs) You know the term tears of nostalgia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I get every time I hear this song. How can a guy with his hand stuffed up inside a sock make (laughs) me feel so vulnerable ready to learn something new and in love with life at the same time. This is absolutely one of my favorite songs of all time. I cried the day Jim Henson died. I was 17 years old and it took a lot to make 17 year old me cry. I remember opening up the newspaper. My parents got the the paper delivered every day and it was before school, my senior year. And I went and got the paper and brought it in and opened it up and saw that Jim Henson had died. It was unexpected. He died of pneumonia yeah. after, you know, just a few days of being diagnosed with it. And yeah, it was awful. Yeah, he didn't get treatment. He thought he just kind of had a cold. It was very sudden. But if you grew up on Sesame Street and the Muppets, and even if you had a great dad, Jim Henson was your other dad. <laughs> you know, I'll tear up right now if I keep talking about it. The universe he created has never been the same since he left. And I feel damn lucky to have grown up during the time that he was creating his music. The melody, the banjo, the sound of his voice as Kermit. This just plops me right down in front of the TV again with my inner seven or eight year old in awe of a singing frog. All I can say is to take this moment right now on the podcast and say, thank you, Jim Henson. Yeah, I wish I would have saved a beer to open because he deserves that yeah. at the very least. Oh yeah, he God. does. We probably won't bring any other songs to the show. I would say to anybody out there, don't be little Muppet music. It's so well-written. It's so oh, from it's the great. heart. It, yeah, it is great. And all of the Muppet movies individually through the first three, at least up until the Muppets take Manhattan, which he was still involved in have great songs on them. Oh yeah, it's great. And you're you're 100% right. I don't think I could add anything to what you said. You did it perfectly right there. This is just one of the best songs ever recorded. Definitely one of my favorites of all time. Yeah. Can't see. Don't anybody ever say anything bad about this song because <laughs> it's <laughs> cuz it's awesome. And uh do, do you remember Paul Williams? Yes. He, he's one of the co-writers of this song. That's right. That's right. I forgot it, that. This is one, yeah, this is one of his best songs ever because it's one of the best songs ever. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's just a great song. Oh, it is. All right, so there we go. 1979, Wrapped in a Bow. Bada bing, bada boom, we're done. There we go. 1979. That was fun, even though I ended yeah, us on that sad moment with Kermit the Frog. You chose the right one. Ironically, we had Kermit the Frog as our correspondent in the last episode, 1995. <laughs> I forgot all about that. <laughs> yeah. I want to thank our friend John for doing that bit for us. That was a lot of Yeah. Fun. Thanks, John. We really yeah. appreciate it. Yep. We'll it, call it, on your services again. 
we definitely <laughs> will. It was it was great. But we have something special coming up for Halloween next week, our next episode. Yes, Jim, what is the special next week? Well, the special next week is going to feature a good friend of mine, a metal blogger, Sandy Williamson. This guy is one of those Braveheart motherfuckers, just pure <laughs> Scottish big metal dudes. And well, I said it right there, metal dudes. We are going to do a metal episode for Halloween. We're not going to do a year. You don't have to pick a year next. Oh, I don't have to pick a year next. It would have been my There's turn. no pressure though. So that's yeah, awesome. <laughs> no pressure at all. And I don't think Sandy's necessarily going to make everybody a metal head for being on the show, but I think it'll be a show that is open to everybody to kind of listen to. So maybe that they understand their metalhead friends a little bit better. And, and I would encourage people that after listening to that episode, you know, if you had a question about metal, put it on the Facebook page. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they will start a conversation about it because it's a, it's a huge form of music that yeah. is incredibly important to a lot of people. All right. So let's wrap it up. We have finished 1979. We know where we're going next to our Halloween metal special. Matt, do you want to sign us off? Okay, Jim, I will. I will sign us off. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into the GM Yearbook. I'm Matt. And I'm Jim. Peace, love, and podcasts.